Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the second session, the second day of our Lenten retreat here at St. John. Um, today is a fitting day for this retreat, although we didn't know this in the planning because the church has ordained that today is the commemoration of St. John Climacus, St. John of the Ladder, who is uh, one of the great spiritual fathers in our, our church who is a source of much of the information that Father Michael will be sharing with you, either from St. John or from people after St. John who had read St. John and were talking in the same way as him. So it's fitting that today we learn exactly about the way of escape, uh, the way in which we can overcome temptation and sin. So Father Michael, please come forward. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you again. Is the, is the mic on? Okay. Thank you again, Father Matthew, your dear priest. I, I am tempted to refer to him as a gentle giant. He's, he's, I didn't expect him to be as, so tall, and, uh, but he's so gentle, and he has a beautiful smile that lights up the altar. Um, and other rooms and uh, he's very sweet it was it was a blessing to see him serving today with the new deacons um, deacons Alexi and Alex at the same parish wonderful so uh, I, I just want to follow up what Father Matthew was saying uh, with this thought that I want to make sure that we keep in mind that we're, we're talking about all of this overcoming temptation not just as an end in itself but in order to so that we can truly experience our Lord Jesus Christ so that we can truly chase after and embrace Christ or rather allow uh, God's grace through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to embrace us. So as we talk about all of this um, kind of ascetical challenge, we don't want to forget that all of this is for the sake of uh, being with being with and in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the communion with him and all of his saints. So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. May that be so by his mercy and grace. So um, yesterday, yesterday evening, we uh, began and introduced the topic of the stages of temptation. And here they are again, provocation, coupling, ascent, and passion or captivity. Um, we talked about provocation and coupling last time. And if you remember, we said that a provocation is really just a suggestion, a simple thought. Um, do this or do that or turn these stones into bread as the Lord said to uh, excuse me as the devil said to the Lord turn these stones into bread just a suggestion coupling 
decoupling is when we kind of nudge up to the we nudge up to the temptation to that thought and we begin a little conversation with that with that thought and we engage it so <clears throat> that's where we left off and so we're going to enter now into the third stage of temptation which is called according to the Holy Fathers ascent ascent and so in the simplest terms uh, ascent means to agree right to agree um, Saint Philotheos of Sinai says ascent is the pleasurable acceptance by the soul of the thing seen. A pleasurable acceptance. So it's not at this point, it's still not something that we do necessarily. It happens in our hearts and minds. Um, although it may eventually be put into action, especially if we get to the stage of ascent. St. Maximus the Confessor writes, Do not misuse thoughts, lest you be forced to misuse things too. Do not misuse thoughts, lest you be forced. And he says forced. That means forced by the compulsive, the compulsiveness of the thought to misuse things too. And then he says, for unless a man first sin in thought, he will never sin in deed. Everything starts with the thoughts. Once we have entertained a sinful thought, provocation, and coupled with it, we're in danger of embracing it and saying Amen to it. With coupling, the temptation has already begun to gain a forward momentum. And if we're not careful, it will lead to ascent very easily. But we don't have to ascent. We're not compelled or forced to ascend, we can still reject the sin at the stage of coupling. Okay? Now, <clears throat> there's something new. There's something very important and something new at this stage of ascent. What is going to be the new thing here? The new aspect at the stage of ascent. Anybody have an idea? The difference here at the stage of ascent is that we produce an image. There's an image involved. <clears throat> A picture. St. Mark the ascetic says, once our thoughts are accompanied by images, we have already given them ascent, our ascent. So this is particularly relevant today, right? Because in our modern culture is the most image-filled 
culture probably ever in the history of mankind, um, at least in terms of visible images. There have always been images, right? Uh, and we love images. We love holy images, right? In the Orthodox faith, there are holy images and there are other kinds of images. Um, but, and anything we see with our eyes or even in our thoughts is an image. Uh, but images have multiplied exponentially in our times, right? Uh, just think about how images were in the past. We, we can say that, you know, we began with some modern forms of art, and then the printing press came along, which allowed more and more images to be produced. Then we had the invention of the camera, right? Uh, then we have magazines and movies and television, and now we have digital and virtual images, right? Of course, images as such we know are not evil, um, but as our culture shifts to become more worldly, more secular, more immoral, and as spiritual fidelity has degenerated in our culture, so have the icons or the images that are presented to us. So if you're over 50 like me, maybe younger, you remember the age of television when it was ABC, NBC, CBS, and then and PBS, right? So think about that and then compare it to just the age that came after that, which was cable, cable TV, right? Um, and of course now, um, we have incredible accessibility to unholy images. Let's say in this case, pornographic, pornography. Um, when I was a kid, if you wanted to see pornography, typically you had to walk physically into a store and go get a magazine and take it up to the clerk at the register. So at least you were embarrassed perhaps and maybe the person at the register, you took the risk, they might know your parents or your brother or your uh, relative. But of course today, there's no middleman. Um, these graphic images have become just as accessible kind of as our thoughts are, right? We, we all enjoy our private thoughts. And now we can also see just about anything at the touch of a button. Okay, we have personal computers, email, the internet with instant images. Um, and all of this accelerates the presence and access to images a thousand times over. And 
if indeed the third stage of temptation always comes with an image. So it makes sense that we are in danger here of more easily falling into sin because perhaps I didn't mention but the fathers say that at the point of ascent we have already sinned. So when we get to the third stage there's no question that we are involved in sin. Um, I think oftentimes Western culture has has uh, led us to believe that sin is just an act, an activity, an action. Uh, but we have to remember again and again, according to the fathers, sin begins in the thoughts and in the heart. And according to our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, he said, out of the heart comes all of these sins. And he says, why do these thoughts arise in your hearts? So the heart is the place where we actually begin sin. And we're culpable for that. Um, people who go to confession and say, oh, No, Father, I'm, I'm a good person and I don't sin and I don't commit murder or adultery. Wait a minute. How much has been going on in your thoughts and in your heart? You know, so it's hard for us priests to believe these things because we know ourselves and we know we know about sin. So anyway, we've shifted into higher and higher speeds and accessibility uh, to the access of all kinds of images: iPhones, iPads, texting, tweeting. Whatever else is going to come after this. Alright, so I just pointed out that what's important about this is that it increases our potential for sin. Where the presence of worldly and, and sinful images increase, the possibility of ascent to temptation increases as well. And worldly images, physical worldly images, now become the source for mental images. You know, sometimes I've heard people say, Oh my gosh, what I just saw, I can't unsee that. You know, I'm never, I cannot unsee that. It's too late. So, mental images are the bridge... Uh, we'll mention some of the um, fathers who say that men, um, images are the bridge that lead us over into sin. They allow us to cross over into sin. Remember what St. Mark said, once our thoughts are accompanied by images, we have already given them our assent. How powerful are images? Well, we've, we've mentioned a few things, but I want to give you a little example. In this case, a really good, positive example. So, some of you may have heard of Peter John Gilquist. 
Um, he is a priest now in the Antiochian Archdiocese. His father was uh, Peter Gilquist, Father Peter Gilquist. And uh, Peter John, I understand, when he was in college, uh, his first year of college, he lived in a dorm. And you know how those dorm rooms are really tiny. And there's a couple beds and maybe a couple desks and not much room in between. Well, as is often the case, Peter John got a roommate, not of his own choosing. And they both came to their rooms and they decorated their rooms with um, their stuff. Peter John put an icon of the Theotokos over his bed. Just a few feet away, the other young man put a poster of a woman in a bikini. Um, I seem to remember when these things, I don't know if they just started coming out. I guess they go way back. Marilyn Monroe. I was thinking of Farrah Fawcett. Anybody remember Farrah Fawcett? Lord have <laughs> No, I made the sign of the cross because she died of cancer. So, may God have mercy on her. Um, so, as I said, you have the Theotokos versus Bikini Woman. And over the course of the semester, the young man, the roommate, began to be affected by this image of the Theotokos, this icon. And he began to be somehow, even intangibly, touched by this. Eventually, he began to feel the contradiction, you know, between the Theotokos and his poster. And he eventually took his poster down. So the holy icon was victorious over the worldly icon. And he had also, of course, begun to notice Peter John's lifestyle, his way of life, and he began to ask questions about the church. He asked if he could go to church. And to my understanding, this man became an Orthodox Christian. As far as I know, he still is. So, images are exceedingly powerful. They have the power to change us, to speak to us, to shape us, to form us according to their own shape. Images transfer energy to us. They transfer spiritual energy, good or evil. We become what we see. Makes sense. We become what we see. And, you know, this is why it's so important to shelter children from worldly images as much as possible. Because especially in children, children are so, uh, so highly impacted by the images that they see. And even more, I would say they're impacted by the image of their mother or father, mother and father, were the images really 
that they see, that's kind of a scary thought. And um, so we have to be really careful. It'd be nice if we're holy. So um, <clears throat> icons are really important, whether holy icons or worldly icons. And sometimes we forget the impact that um, images can have on us. Okay, so now let's talk about mental movies. So we now, now we know that images play a vital role in the process of temptation and movement towards sin. And we've said that images can be a bridge in which we cross over to sin. But mental images in particular, mental images are more dangerous often spiritually than physical ones. Why? Why would that be the case? Yes, because we are, it's internal, we've internalized something, so maybe we're more engaged. But also, what can you do easily to mental images? You can, yeah, we can control them, we can manipulate them, uh, we can manipulate them to do anything our passions may desire. Okay, so this is why, by the way, the, the saints tell us that when we pray, when we pray we don't conjure up images. Um, when we pray, we don't imagine God the Father sitting on a throne, an old man with a beard, you know. And when we pray to the Holy Spirit, oh, there's the Holy Spirit, he's a dove. No, because uh, for various reasons, one reason being that we begin to associate an image with God who is beyond images, but also these images, we can do anything we want to them uh, in our minds. And so they become kind of, you know, our own gods. They become gods of our own making. And it's not the true God, you know. So we don't make images. Now, it sounds like really contradictory. The same church that teaches we don't think of images when we pray, that same church has images all over the church. What's the deal? The deal is, is that these images are made according to a fashion which provide us with a holy image. And so, and you know, I mean we could sort of manipulate the icon, but when we pray before an icon, we simply look at the icon. We look at it as it is. We're not creating something of our own. This is like a canon. It's just like the Holy Scriptures. We don't make up something and insert it into the Scriptures. And we do the same with the icons. We, we take them for what they are. Okay, so the mental imagery in the um, 
in the terminology of, and theology of the church is called fantasia. Fantasia. Fantasy. Did I misspell that? I think I misspelled it. Fantasy, fantasia, was not part of our natural God-created condition. But it's a result of the fall. Before the original sin, Adam and Eve did not engage in fantasy. Interesting, interesting and challenging for us. Instead, they received and uh, perceived truth coming from God directly to their news. It's that, it's that receiver, that spiritual receiver that we have in the heart. They received truth coming from God directly into the noose, which is the, in, the input. And then their conclusions were articulated with the help from the reasoning ability. So this is what the saints do. This is how they produce theology. Remember, theology is not primarily a matter of the brain or the reasoning faculty. Theology comes through an encounter with God to experience God in the noose and then and then it's articulated through words. So this is how we receive theology. And even with the saints, some of them are not as good at articulating these things. So that's why we say St. Gregory the theologian, St. Simeon the new theologian, St. John the theologian. Particularly, we call three saints theologians, but we have others, the, the three hierarchs, the patrons of our community in Wenatchee. We have these theologians because they also had the capacity to, um, to articulate that experience that they had. So, you know, Moses, for instance, think of Moses. He experienced God in the burning bush. He didn't sit in a room and philosophize about God. God is incomprehensible. He must be this and that and the other. No, he encountered God. He experienced him. He said, what is your name? What shall I call you? And then... Like St. Paul, who also, remember he was on the way to Damascus, he was blinded by the uncreated light, and he had this experience which he articulated. If you look in the book of Acts, there's three or four times that he talks about his experience, and each time the, he articulates it a little bit differently, and it, it's expanded. It's expanded a little bit toward... Uh, the last time or two that he talks about it because he's still he's still like nourished by that experience and he's still um, he's still coming to understand it even more okay so fantasy 
Remember that we said reasoning is an active power, positive reasoning, so, but fantasy is passive and the inverse of reason. Fantasy is the creation of images and scenes which are perceptible to the five senses. Saint Isaac the Syrian says, the images created by the imagination are due to the sickness of the soul, not its purity. All the images the noose is accustomed to construct about these things are fantasy and imagination, not the truth. The important thing for our purposes is to know that if we consciously or unconsciously form mental images, fantasies, in conjunction with a temptation, we have already entered the realm of assenting to the temptation. We've got some forward momentum. In that case, these mental images provoke one of our passions. They've already provoked one of our passions. Lust, greed, gluttony, anger, despair, pride, etc. And Saints Callistos and Ignatius Xanthopoulos, good hard Greek word to say, they tell us that fantasy, quote, acts as a bridge for the demons. A bridge for the demons. And then they add, these murderous destroyers go back and forth over this bridge, communing and mixing with the soul in some way, and making it a hive of drones and an abode of barren and passionate thoughts. Have you ever imagined a confrontation with someone? I know you haven't. You guys are pure, but I, I have. I have imagined, you know, a confrontation with somebody and he says this and I say that and she says this and I say that. And then, you know, it, it accelerates into some kind of physical fight and before you know it and there's anger stirred up inside but it never happened hopefully this never happened it's, com it's a complete fabrication it's complete fantasy it's the creation of our passion when I was younger this used to happen to me usually when I mowed the lawn there was this, because it was just this, my hands are vibrating, I'm, you know, my thoughts are just, uh, no one told me to say the Jesus prayer back then. Uh, see, I'm blaming it on somebody else. So, um, there's a passion involved, and we're not reasoning or doing positive thinking. Um, we've got this fantasy going on and there is some pleasure to be had. Whenever I, whenever I fantasize about a confrontation, I always win. I always win. Um, somehow. 
So, and it's pleasurable. Even, even anger. There's a certain pleasure, right, in being angry. I had a priest when I was younger, and he would always ask the question, like, when somebody did something that didn't appear to be beneficial to them, or I did something that wasn't beneficial to me, he would always say, what's the payoff? What are you getting out of this? You're getting something. Well, no, I mean, I don't want this, you know. It's, no, but you're getting something out of it. That's why you're doing it. So it's a great question. So there's some benefit or some pleasure uh, that we get from these things. So these fantasies um, stir up the passions and intensify them, and they influence our current spiritual state and possibly our future actions. Okay? If we have been, if we've been imagining a confrontation with a person, what happens when we actually meet that person? And Saint Porphyrios, the newly glorified Saint Porphyrios, he talks a lot about how the energies that we emit, the energies are emitted from our hearts to others. The, the spiritual energy that we have according to the condition of our heart is transferred to others. Even if we're not physically in their, in their presence. Okay. So let's get back to physical images we see with our eyes or actual events. Everything we see gets imprinted on our heart. Everything we see gets imprinted on our heart and it remains there in some way. Our hearts have a photographic memory and the Holy Fathers call it the imaginative faculty. The imaginative faculty. We do have an imaginative faculty that God created. So there is, there is a place for imagination. Um, but the way the fathers talk about it, it's, it's more like the capacity to have memory. To have a memory. So I'm going to do something, I'm going to try something that a friend of mine, a priest, Father John Bethencourt, uh, does. And so I'm going to steal it from him. So close your eyes and I want you to imagine a lemon. Imagine a nice yellow lemon. And I want you to rub with your fingers, just rub the skin and feel the texture. And you can, you can put your fingers now up to your nose and smell. Okay, and then look at that lemon and look how, look at the yellow color. And now I want you to take a knife and be careful with the knife, but cut the lemon in half. And I want you to kind of smell the spray 
of the fragrance of the lemon. And now I want you to take a half of that lemon and put it up to your mouth and lick it. Lick that lemon. Do you taste it? Okay, you can open your eyes. Some of you made a little grimace when you tasted the lemon. Why? Why is that possible? Why is it possible that you were able to actually smell and taste that lemon? Well, it's because of this imaginative faculty. The ability to um, have a memory, a memory imprinted. And once we have that memory, we have access to that reality. So we, we all had access to a lemon, even though, there's, even though there's no lemon in the entire room here. But we had access to it. We don't have time to go into this, and I probably couldn't articulate it like Father John, but, but he connected this even to, you know, in the liturgy, we remember the Lord's death and resurrection and ascension and sitting at the right hand. The priest says, having in remembrance these saving acts, the cross, the grave, the third day resurrection, the ascension, the sitting at the right hand, and the second and glorious coming. We remember something in the future. Through Christ, we actually have access to these realities, they come into the present moment, like the lemon just did. So, it's an amazing thing, beautiful thing. That's a good kind of imagination. Um, but the, the worldly memories that we have and the sinful memories, uh, or the sinful activities or thoughts, they create memories that become potential video clips in our mental movie file. The fantasies that we have. Those memories come back to us sometimes when we least expect it. Somebody was asking about that yesterday. And they carry with them the sinful passion and the feeling, if you will, comes back. The memories then become a source of temptation to us. And remember that it's at the stage of ascent that we produce an image. So if we have this image that comes back to us, we're in danger of immediately getting into a condition of sin. These are temptations that come prepackaged with an image. So do you see the danger? We find ourselves in a situation where we immediately, immediately jump and maybe even skip provocation and we jump right into ascent because of the image. And it takes much more energy and effort to back up, to get out of this condition of ascent. So to that point, it brings us to another understanding or reality that we, we are taught by the Holy Fathers. 
and related to this um, this ability for us to have an image associated with a memory of sin and um, these memories inflame a sinful passion instantly sometimes instantly when we encounter a temptation or a thought so remember we said that you know sometimes we don't even consciously think or know that we have a provocation and we don't really we feel like we're immediately into a sinful thought that's sometimes because of this immediately thrown into a struggle and it's because of the memory of the previous sin the Holy Fathers have given this phenomenon a name and they call it prepossession prepossession so we know what possession means in this case to be possessed by our passion and they put the prefix pre on there to show that it's something that exists beforehand. They also call it prejudice. St. Mark the ascetic defines prepossession as quote the involuntary presence of former sins in the memory. Let me repeat that. The involuntary presence of former sins in the memory. Notice it's involuntary. We may not want it, but it's there. Do you remember the life of St. Mary of Egypt? Amazing, just the most amazing, moving story, perhaps of all time. Uh, we are going to hear her story again in the church this year in the fifth week of Great Lent. Um, it's inserted into the canon of St. Andrew, if you remember, when we do the whole canon of St. Andrew of Creed. Well, what did she tell St. Zosimus, the priest who encountered her in the desert? She said, Father, believe me, for 17 years... When I first came into the desert, for 17 years, I struggled with the temptations and the memories of my former life. All the images of her former life presented themselves to disturb her soul and to disturb her uh, purpose of repentance. It was not only the sexual sins and escapades, but she literally thirsted for the wine. She used to party and she drank wine and she wanted and she remembered the dancing. Okay, dancing is fine, but the kind of dancing that she was doing was not so innocent. <coughs> The dancing, the partying, the drinking, drinking of the wine. Just like you had the lemon, you have the lemon in your memory. She had all of this to, to uh, deal with. And, you know, 
if if she grew up like in this wonderful Christian home where she embraced her faith and she was in liturgy all the time and she like father's son who was reading today and did a great job at reading and chanting beautiful job how much different her life would have been but she spent 17 years just fighting against these memories to overcome all of this so um, she had participated in these sins so frequently and with such abandon that she carved a deep path from the very thought to the pleasure of the sin. And she, there was a bridge, like we said, that has, had been created from the thought to the sin. And the bridge was the memory were the memories. So we're back to Pavlov's dogs. How did the scientists create an association between the ringing of the bell and the dog's expectation for food? Simple. Right? Through repetition and reinforcement. He rang the bell each time before giving the dog a treat. And eventually, the bell became associated with the treat so that he didn't even have to give any food to the dog. The dog just began salivating and had expectation for food. Um, so you could take the treat completely out of the equation. Just ringing the bell was enough to trigger the psychological response associated with hunger. The same thing happens when we give in to the same temptation over and over and over again. Each time the sin is repeated, it becomes easier to sin the next time and more difficult to reject the temptation. Okay, does that make sense? The memory of the previous sins makes the next sin more likely. That's what prepossession is. Like a small snowball that begins rolling down a snowy hill, a temptation to sin gains weight and speed over time and becomes an overwhelming force. What's interesting too is that in the beginning, our falling into sin has a treat associated with it. What's the treat? Some kind of pleasure. Some kind of pleasurable sensation or result. But with time, as we realize we are enslaved to this, against our will, the treat goes away. Eventually, much of the pleasure goes away. And the saints tell us, particularly Saint Maximus the Confessor tells us that with sensual pleasure comes spiritual pain. So the treat goes away and we're left with the sin and the suffering associated with us with it. This is how the devil kind of prompts us into sin. He says, he doesn't say, you should do something evil.
because doing evil is really a good thing. Like C.S. Lewis, you know, talks about this. We don't do, we don't sin typically because we enjoy a negative sensation. We sin because it seems like something positive. We're going to get something good out of this. So even when we sin, we're looking for something good. But the trouble is, the devil kind of gives us a treat. He makes us think there's going to be a treat. And then, once he gets us habitually into this sin, we realize there's no treat anymore. And we're just enslaved. We're imprisoned. And there's pain and suffering. But there we are. We're, now we're enslaved to it. And so our memory plays a big role in our temptations. Just as computers have memory cards full of information, fallen human beings have memories of encounters with sin. The computer's memory exists, but is hidden until you double-click and a certain program is launched. Suddenly there's a whole virtual world that is opened up with images and stimulation of all kinds. In the same way, a memory can launch a sudden series of passionate thoughts in which we become immersed. So this is why images and imagination as in fantasia is so important. Um, so vital, so potentially uh, dangerous for us. Let's stop here and see if we have any questions. We're going to shift a little bit into the passions. What are the passions? And a little bit of the remedy for the passions. Any questions about images or the stage of ascent? Oh, and we, we need the microphone, I believe. Over here. So the image comes into our head. Yes. A past memory or a version of a past memory. Yes. Are you going to, to um, give us some tips or constructs of derailing that memory before we become entrenched in it? No, you're on your own. <laughs> and will that come now or later? <laughs> I'm on my own. Yeah, you know, I should, since I laid out this big problem that we have, how, and I guess I don't give any solution. It's not in my notes. Well, let's just, let's just think for a second and pause um, and see what comes. Well, you know, it's kind of like Really, it's a little bit like what, we're, what we do with provocation, except that the, the
temptation is more intense, right? So we have to reject with a great deal of power. I am going to give you, I am going to give you something of how this works, but it's a it's a rejection, or we have to reject that uh, image. We have to get rid of that image. So um, we try to completely put it aside. We try to like redirect that image. And obviously crying out to the Lord. St. Mary of Egypt was talks about being face down on the floor, you know, um, crying out to God. And that's always a good plan. That's always a good thing. Now, we could pray specifically if it involves another person. We pray for that person with, with love and compassion instead of what is going on in our mind. You know, and the fathers give us various kinds of remedies or, or strategies. Like if, if we're a man and we're imagining a woman lustfully, someone we know, they tell us, well, we can imagine that she's dead and buried and her flesh is rotting. That's attractive. That, you know, kind of changes the scenario. So we, in that case, we kind of combat fantasy with imagination. Uh, but we have to find a way to redirect my wife um, read a lot when we were going to have a baby and after we had a baby and she read a lot about parenting and one of the best strategies for parenting when the child is doing something wrong, you know, usually we focus on what they're doing wrong and we say, no, don't do that. Do you, do you know why you shouldn't do that? And and we, we sort of just focus intensely on the behavior that we want to be changed. But in some ways, it tends to reinforce, or rather, it sort of reminds the child of what they're doing. And what we should be doing is we should be redirecting them to a different behavior. So we, we try to like um, redirect them just make them forget about that and just redirect them to the good. Redirect them to something else so that they can get out of that moment. Especially, you know, we can do this with emotions, with negative emotions. If they're having a fit about something or if they're angry, redirect them. Oh, little child, look at our dog. Look what the dog's doing. You know, you have to, because it's not that we want to completely ignore um, teaching them about the negative behavior. But before we can really teach them in a good way, we have to put them into a different disposition. We have to change their disposition. So we, we have to redirect ourselves. We have to, and you know, ultimately, in every case, we are trying to redirect ourselves to God. And so we should turn that occasion 
into prayer. And we should, um, Father Zacharias Zacharou in Essex, England, a spiritual father, he says we need to get out of the psychological realm and we need to enter into a spiritual realm. This comes from Elder Sophroni of Essex. If we stay trapped in our psychological self, we, we, we never transcend to the divine. So we simply, it's, it's a dead end to remain in the psychological realm. It's a, just a dead end. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a place for psychological therapy and so forth, but the ultimate theory is th th uh, therapy is just to get out of the psychological realm and into a transformative realm, which is prayer, which is encountering God and transforming that psychological condition uh, so that it becomes something blessed and something new. So I would say, and we can use the icons, we use our icons, we go run to our icon corner because those icons are going to communicate a beautiful spiritual um, uh, energy to us and begin that, that transformation from the emotional state to the spiritual state. Um, will you be touching on the scientific aspects of this and how it affects us neuroscientifically, or are we just sticking to... Um, I haven't done a lot of research on that, but just, I could just, so I'm not really, really prepared for that, but that's a great question. But I... I can say that I do know that in the, in the neurological realm, there's been a lot of new um, discoveries. And the, the most important discovery is that our brain is elastic, which means it can be retrained and re, reconfigured. So indeed, that would be part of the process that would either, we'd either uh, try to make happen or it would happen as a result of our spiritual pursuit of prayer and ascetical uh, practices to get us out of the temptation. So the implication is that our brain is wired in a certain way and there's certain paths. Why are there paths there, neurological paths? It's because we've taken that path many times before. And so there's an association that's been created in our brain. Well, if we begin to behave in a different way, or if we begin to be redirected, we can actually create new paths. Um, physically, new paths from one part of the brain to another part. And that frees us, that can free us from walking down the same path over and over again. But it takes practice and it takes repetition because that's how the sin came into existence to begin with and that's how the neurological path was created. But it's good news, right? The science is giving us good news that we can be 
changed um, even in our neurological um, condition. I don't know, maybe there are scientists here who can um, elaborate on that. There, there is, um, Dr. Caroline Leith is a, is a Christian and she is a neuroscientist and she studies exactly this and is able to tie in biblically how we are created in the image of God and how that's so important. That's why I was asking her to be touching on that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's wonderful because she is a Christian. And, what is what is her name again? Her name is Dr. Caroline Leaf, and she is a Christian, and she is also a neuroscientist. And she spent her entire life studying neuroscience and exactly what you're talking about and tying it in spiritually as we are created in the image of God and why it's critical that we live a life of, of prayer and you know, with Christ, mm-hmm. how it literally, the scientific studies, how it actually affects our brain. Yes. God created it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, they call it elasticity of the brain and how it can actually be physically uh, changed. That's not our ultimate goal, but it's the result of. I mean, we can, we can go about it from that standpoint, but the ultimate goal is union with God through Christ. And as a result, our, our biology has changed. Our actual biology has changed. You know, we, we Orthodox, more than anyone, believe in the psychosomatic reality of our human existence. We are body and soul. That's why at the funeral, that's why we don't cremate people, that's why we don't just, you know, throw the body in some river or something. We venerate the body. We, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, we venerate the relics of the saints because the Holy Spirit actually is communicated through them. Here we have, uh, need the microphone, up here. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, So, I've always been a very visual person. This is really interesting, you know. We recently had a very horrific crime that touched on somebody in our family, and while I knew the generalities of it, I didn't know the specifics of it, I didn't choose to read any of the news stories or have Mm -hmm. it related to me, but in my head I was really struggling with imagining what had happened. Sure. And it was very disturbing to my soul. And Mm -hmm. so in talking to my father confessor about it, his advice was to write down, he gave me a, a certain prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, cleanse my thoughts and purify my mind. And mm-hmm. he had me write it a certain number of times and then read it very slowly. And then whenever those images would start to come into my mind to just pray that prayer. Mm-hmm. And it has been, by the grace of God, so helpful. And it was interesting because I was asking about it in particular with this one situation. But I found it's very helpful for a lot of other just random images or thoughts that come yeah. to just kind of, it's it's that that way you did last night with the shoeing. It, mm-hmm. But it's that, anyway, 
I just thought I would share that because it was writing it repe repeatedly and then just having that at my disposal was a gift. Yes, wonderful. Wonderful. Um, yeah, because we have to create a new memory. And ultimately, what does the Lord say? He says, one thing is needful. And the fathers say, the name of Jesus. So the Jesus prayer, of course, is um, a great weapon against all of these things. The name of the Lord. And the sin, the, the memories come crashing onto the, onto the name of Jesus. Jesus is, is the rock. <clears throat> and those temptations, those memories, those sins... Um, are thrown against the rock of the name of Christ and they are broken. And this takes time though. Like imagine you you were just a you were a secondary person in that scenario. Imagine if you were the person that it happened to. Imagine women that are raped and how they deal with their how do they overcome their memory? You know. And it's terrible. It's like we it's like post-traumatic stress syndrome. But ultimately obviously we believe that it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ and through a, a repetition of of, a, of something different, of something that's greater than that memory, something that can overcome it, and then we can we can let go of the memory. It can be transformed even. Imagine forgiving the person who rapes you. As um, the Grand Duchess Elizabeth, Saint Elizabeth the New Martyr did for the person who killed her husband, who put a bomb in his carriage and his limbs went all over the road and she picked up his body parts, but she went to the police station and she forgave the, man, the murderer. So, very difficult. I just had a question um, about the quote that you said. You said, with sensual pleasure comes spiritual pain. Yes. Um, and I was just, that just struck me because I, you know, we all experience sensual pleasure in this life. And so, yes. to me, that would, that quote says, well, Gosh, every time I feel something good, that then I'm, uh, you know, that that's not good. So I just, you know, I just yes. wondered about just um, how to, you know, go through how to deal with, you know, just being in this world and having just, we have pleasure, we have things that we experience and how to keep that in, you know, balance and not go into um, get, letting that get out of control. Yes, well, I'm glad you asked that question because that quote could be troubling, you know. It could. Um, we have to, and I'm not going to say that I can, uh, that I can dissect that perfectly. I need to have more knowledge. But... But you know, when the saints say that, they, when they talk about sensual pleasure, it's, they're talking about what the Bible calls the flesh. And so we, we have enjoyment. 
We, I'm not, please don't think that I'm saying that we cannot have enjoyment. There is a blessed enjoyment, you know, and there's, there's all kinds of truth that we encounter in the world. And we encounter Christ in many different ways. And we can have good emotions and all of that is a great blessing. So the saints are talking about something that is inherently sinful in the sense of what they call the flesh, which doesn't just mean the body. Because when St. Paul lists the sins of the flesh, he includes things like heresy. It has nothing to do with the body. And greed really ultimately has nothing to do with the body. So um, these are distorted, we have to remember, these are distorted passions of the flesh. And they're things like lust and envy, all the things we say are passions, and heresy, false belief. So, I mean, but we can relate to this on a, on a very fundamental level. For instance, um, if we get drunk, that's a sin. But drinking isn't a sin, right? In the Orthodox Church, it's sometimes coffee hour time. <laughs> Um, and Pascha. Drinking is not a sin, but drunkenness is. And I'm told that if you drink too much, you can have a hangover the next day, which causes physical pain and mental anguish and so forth. Well, it makes sense, right? You overdid it with, this, with the sensory pleasure, the attempt to have sensory pleasure, and it creates pain. And we can all, I think, agree on that. So, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about. But just, I would just say, we should all maybe contemplate that more, and we can think about it more. We can think about our own experience. And we can think probably of many examples, you know, like, again, when we get angry with someone, rageful, it cre it's a pleasurable thing. You know, we're finally putting this person in their place. And then afterwards we feel terrible. We, we our conscience is and we realize that we went way overboard, that this was not a, an appropriate response to whatever happened. That's a, that's a form of sensual pleasure. So don't think it's just anything that we do with our body or, you know, um, it really has a technical sense, I think. Does that help? question here. <clears throat> so, should we think about whether the thought is bad or good for the second stage? Should we think about it or should we just say, no, I'm not going to think about it. I'm just not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's okay to engage our mind 
to engage on some level, it just, it's tricky, right? Because if we engage too much and we make the wrong choice, then we, that's why, like it takes a lot of experience to be able to discern. You know what discernment is? It's being able to tell between if something's good or bad. And we think, we probably, you know, most of the time think, well, that's pretty simple, but that's not simple. Um, I was quoting something from the fathers not long ago that basically said, the most difficult thing is to discern what's good or bad and then to do the good. It's not an easy thing. So, um, but we just want to be careful about engaging too much in a thought that pops into our head. We have to have discernment ultimately as to whether it's good or bad. And remember that I gave you a little bit of a rule of thumb yesterday that if a thought creates um, agitation in our soul, if it creates anxiety and agitation and, and disturbance, then probably we should get rid of it. Because when God gives us some good thought or the purity of our heart gives us a good thought, usually it brings peace. So that's a good way to tell. Is an example of your use of the term imagination versus fantasy, is imagination the conversation that the prodigal son has with himself that says, you know, this is where I am and this is what life would be like in my father's house and I've fallen short so I'm now going to go to my father. That's imagination because it leads me to repentance and to a godly disposition. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful um, analogy. Yeah, I do think so because the, the prodigal son remembered his father's house. He had memories of it. He, he knew that that was good. That was pleasurable in the good sense. So um, I think that's a great way, very practical way to think about it, yes. We, the fathers do talk about spiritual pleasure, so we do have spiritual pleasure. Um, what about the situation of um, a person who was being abusive? Can you say it again, but closer to the microphone? Uh, in the situation of somebody being abusive, it, how, um, how do you know when it's time... Well, it never is, but and it's, I was thinking about the situation where you talked about the confrontation imaging. Uh-huh. And um, you, you talked about you know, using the Jesus prayer. So if you're in a situation and, uh, of a, an abusive person, um, and how do you know when it's time to step out and get outside help? 
because it, it feels that you should be putting your trust in Jesus, but how do you know when it's time to step out of that? <laughs> well, putting your trust in Jesus doesn't exclude the options of getting help. It's the putting our trust in Jesus includes um, talking to our spiritual father and asking his advice. It includes seeking help. It doesn't exclude other people being involved. And, um, you know, we, we also have to know what our limits are. There are stories of certain saints whose spiritual father actually abused them, was somewhat abusive, and they were able to um, they were able to live with that in a way that was redemptive. Most of us can't. Most of us wouldn't be able to. So um, there's nothing in the church fathers that say we have to stay in any kind of abusive relationship. And certainly anything that causes, um, that actually causes us temptation, the first remedy to that is to get away from it. Because we're not ready. We're not ready to like have to um, be immersed in that. That takes a great deal of um, spiritual maturity. So we, we run away from temptation. That's generally what the church tells us about temptation. Don't like get away from it. There's, this doesn't really apply to abusiveness, but there's a story from the Desert Fathers of a group of monks walking with their elder in the city. They have to go to the city for some reason, and there's a prostitute walking by, and the monks take their exorasa, their long robe, and they put it in front of their eyes so they don't see the woman. But they notice out of the corner of their eyes that the abbot or the spiritual father, he looks right at her. And they're like, Father, what's going on? You're looking right at the woman. And, and he says, yes. And I was saying to the Lord, how wonderful it is that he creates such beautiful creations, creatures. Well, that's because of his spiritual maturity he was able to, to actually see, to look, and to actually, all he could see was purity, because of the purity of his heart. Um, the scriptures say, to the pure, all things are pure. But the disciples were not able to do that. They were not, it would have been a, an abuse to them, to themselves. They would have been abusing themselves to go ahead and look, because they're not ready for that. So abusive situations, um, we don't usually, we would never usually advise someone to just stay there and take it. You know, it, there are times when um, it does bring out, it does expose in us our own sins that we need to work on, right? And rarely is it just completely and utterly one-sided. There are things that we can find in that equation that 
that shows us our weakness, you know. So, I'll give you an example with Alcoholics Anonymous or um, alcoholism. There's the alcoholic who is oftentimes abusive, and there's the alcoholic spouse who oftentimes, through their attitudes and behavior, they actually perpetuate the situation. And they, they, they do things that um, sort of intensify the situation. They nag the alcoholic. They enable the alcoholic. They, they hide, you know, and they manipulate him. And they, they do all kinds of things that are unproductive. That's why they have um, Al-Anon, which is for spouses of alcoholics. And those, those spouses usually see themselves as superior and righteous and self-righteous. And they have to realize, you know what, they're part of this, they're part of, part of the equation that ha- is creating havoc. They're part of this dysfunctional system that's creating havoc in the home. So I, you know, without, without knowing specifically what kinds of things you're talking about, it's, it's hard to answer very specifically. Question over here. Oh, question here. Uh, my, my, my comments are, and their, and their comments, I guess they're not a, a question, but I got to thinking real hard when you were talking about the power of image and icons. And I'm closer to uh, 70 than I am 69. And for most of my adult life, I've had a phobia of driving over high and long bridges. (laughs) And uh, it was only about a year and a half ago that I took off to see my son up in Wenatchee (laughs) and headed up I-94 by myself. (laughs) And... Uh, feeling confident that I can do this and knowing I had to cross the Columbia at some point. <laughs> cross the Columbia at some point. And uh, the old Biggs, the bridge at Biggs where you go across where 97 meets. And uh, I carry in my car a 3 by 5 uh, plastic covered icon of St. Patrick who's my uh, baptismal name. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started feeling the usual anxiety things that I that'll keep me from going over a bridge or making a very uncomfortable trip. And pulled the icon out of the console where I keep them and put it up near the speedometer. And I had a conversation <laughs> with them going over the bridge and conversation with myself of uh, you know, looking at him and recalling because I'd read a lot about him and how hard his life was. <laughs> And he's the real St. Patrick, anyway. And uh, telling myself what a wimp you are. You're here in a modern, nice car going over a bridge, and you can't do that. And, but I had this conversation, and it just sort of drew, drew all of that out of me. Mm-hmm. Sort of put his life into me. And I just got this call about me and made it over to the other side. And it's, uh, it's changed it's changed how I approach hmm. things Wonderful. in a lot of parts of my life, and that's once it's sort of a simple one, maybe, but 
Um, I, I think it tries to get it, maybe what you were talking about, at least. I, do, I try to do that every day, but that was an extreme example of it. Mm -hmm. Good. You crossed over. <laughs> well, um, yeah, some people use, misuse religiosity or even some teaching of the Orthodox Church to uh, abuse themselves. So, but that's that's coming from an imbalance in that person. And, um, you know, maybe a psychological imbalance and things that happened in their childhood and they, they're comfortable with self-abuse and so forth. And so when you have things like that, we actually have to deal with, we have to bring that healing into that so that we don't, we don't advocate people abusing themselves. But you know, there are things in the, in the saints' lives and the fathers where the saints accepted certain kinds of abuse and so forth. And if we try to imitate that in a wrong way or with an imbalanced soul, then we get into trouble. So just thought I would add a little bit more about that. Jody. Father, just picking up on what was asked here before, um, could you kind of address, I think there seems to be a, a really big difference between um, that kind of fantasy you're talking about, say, fantasizing a confrontation, where you imagine that you are, what you're going to say, and if only you'd said this, and that person, and, you know, that kind of a, a fantasy that leads to, you know, that's self-aggrandizement and pride and anger and all of those emotions. There's a really big difference between that and, say, you really have to have a confrontation with someone. You have to come to that person and you have got to talk to that person about something that's going on and that there would be a healthy way of saying, okay, so when we come into this, he's probably going to say this. How can I respond to that? You know, I mean, that, that's the use of imagination, maybe the things that you were talking about, but there's, you know, there are going to be times when we, you know, we have to enter into those things and <laughs> the imagination could be used in a, in a good and healthy way, which is not about, you know, just pleasing yourself and, and, you know, and reliving something that happened and, you know. And sure, sure. Well, you know, we could call it imagination, good imagination, or we could call it positive thinking and reasoning, you know, because I talked about positive thinking. And when we have to sort out a situation, like you said, we have to talk to someone and we say, they may say such and such, and how would I respond? That may just be part of positive thinking and planning, strategizing. Um, but the main thing, the important thing about that would be that we did it without passion. Um, because that would be the issue as to whether we're going to be doing it in the right spirit or not. And of course we have to do it with preparation, with prayer.
But if we bring a lot of passion to it, we might find ourselves having uh, difficulties or it may backfire on us. Can you define the difference between imagination and fantasy? I'm kind of piggyback on what John, more clarity on that. Mm, Yeah. Well, that's difficult because probably I don't experience pure positive imagination as much as I do fantasia. But um, a good imagination is certainly can be used if I want to write a series of books called the Chronicles of Narnia, for instance, where I use my imagination to transfer kind of Christian principles into a story. So that would be a wonderful use of imagination, positive imagination. And then the other kinds, like I mentioned the lemon, you know, uh, we have memory, we have memory of good things and Christ-centered things and encounters with Christ and with others that bring us to Christ. And those are very blessed types of memories. And um, the ultimate memory, like I say, is when in the Divine Liturgy the Church and Christ brings us to a literal present memory, if you will, a memory that comes into the present, which is the memory of Christ's death and resurrection and all the things that he's done for our salvation. So even though we were not standing at the cross in the liturgy, we do stand at the cross if we're experiencing the liturgy in its full impact. And um, because when we say that we remember what Christ did in the liturgy, we're using the Greek word anamnesis, which in the original means to bring something from the past into the present. So it's not just a mental remembrance that, oh, I remember Jesus was crucified, I've heard about that. No, it's actually in the liturgy that past becomes accessible to us, like the lemon did. It becomes tangibly accessible to us in the present moment. And that's like the ultimate use of the imaginative faculty. It's a little bit um, confusing for us because the fathers call it the imaginative faculty, but it's not always what we think of when we think of imagination. But, But if we're doing positive imagination, if we're doing it in a positive way, and it's not passively imposing itself on us, then we're probably in pretty good shape.
So the difference between fantasy and imagination. Sorry, difference between fantasy and imagination. Well, um, the, the fantasia is a manipulation of our ability to construct an image and a memory or a memory or to, to manipulate a memory. Um, it uses the passion. It uses a passion is involved in the imagination. That's when it becomes fantasy. And really when it, be, when it goes outside the context of reality. Maybe something like that. Is it important to be measured with all these things? To know where you're coming from? And, and to wait, because if it's from God, he'll come back. Uh-huh. That, that's how I like to think of most things. And I'm closer to 72 like he is. Uh-huh. Well, uh, you older folks have the wisdom. So, you know, because when they were going to stone the woman who was in adultery, in the Gospel of John, it, it says, after Jesus said, let the, let the one without sin cast the first stone, it says, and they dropped, they began to walk away, beginning with the eldest. Because the older people who have more knowledge of themselves, they have, they have more humility. And they realize, of course, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner too. Yeah, so we do have to be measured, as you said. We have to be balanced. We have to be careful with all of this. Yeah, and that's why, you know, we don't do anything on our own. We don't just run our own spiritual life. We, we, we seek out help. And that's why we read the church fathers and we have a father confessor and a spiritual father. And, um, and the fathers talk about going down the, the middle ro road, the royal road. Don't go too far to the left or the right. And we have to know our limitations. We have to be humble. So we approach everything with humility and not... Um, not as if we uh, do it, we don't do things with uh, in pridefulness or with a um, with a trust in our own abilities. Ultimately, like you know, I'm doing this on my own, and I can figure anything out on my own. And we have to be really careful with that as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, going back to the first, uh, the previous question, would, would it be fair to say that um, imagination is our creative faculty that's given to us by God, and fantasy is the abuse of that power? Yeah, there is a creativity that's given to us by God. 
And so we're called to use that. But it ha our creativity, our imagination has to be sanctified like anything else. Our imagination can be fallen, right? And distorted, or it can be purified like everything else in our soul. So we have to be, if we're sanctified, our creativity will be sanctified. Um, Saint Andrei Rublev, do you know who he is? He wrote the icon of the Holy Trinity, we call it, and he was the first one to do it in this way. Um, he, it's really an icon of the hospitality of Abraham and the appearing of the three men or angels, which we do understand as being a uh, representation of the Holy Trinity or in some sense a manifestation. But he took Abraham and Sarah out and he took the food, the lunch part out and he put bread and wine. So it becomes an image of the Holy Trinity and um, the communion cup with the Holy Eucharist and so forth. How did he do that? He had to have used his imagination to some degree, but it was a wholly sanctified imagination. And it doesn't happen that often, you know. Usually, iconographers are supposed to follow a basic canon, right? But ultimately, they do put their personality in there. But they don't make things up, typically. They don't say, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw an icon of the Theotokos without, without something covering her head. I'm gonna give her a, a what do they call that? Hairstyle with the bun on top? <laughs> I don't know. You know, we don't, we're not supposed to do that. That would just be kind of pure innovation for its own sake. And that's what art, you know, has often become. It's like, who can do the most weird, radical, um, and offensive thing in the realm of art? And people just try to outdo each other to be more offensive something like that. Art is always, originally art was always a way to elevate the soul and lift it to something greater, ultimately to God. So if your imagination leads you to God, go for it. But, but we just have to be careful. The fathers always, they wouldn't give us so many warnings unless there were some real pitfalls right to the imagination so uh, we have to be careful um, and they want us to be holy and then use our imagination <laughs> as much as we can but um, yeah this topic always brings discussion because I mean I wrote music I wrote contemporary Christian music with my guitar and my own lyrics and 
if anybody used their imaginative faculty was me. And I don't know if I, I mean, I think it was good for the most part because I, I, I was, I went to seminary, I knew Orthodox theology. So hopefully I wasn't putting heresy into my songs. The first contemporary Christian artist, though, was a heretic, Arius. He, he wrote songs, he took melodies from uh, those who were on the high seas. This, he took sea shanties, uh, melodies, and he put words to them that were heretical. Like, there was a time when the Son of God was not. Um, so we can do that, or we can create something beautiful that leads people to God. But even, even what I was doing with Kerygma caused waves with some clergymen. And I could understand. Um, if I wasn't the one doing it, I probably would be a little suspicious too. <laughs> Um, are we supposed to stop? We could probably stop at this point. Maybe one more question, and then we can go to lunch. Oh, if there is another question. I have a quick one, I hope, and maybe some of the same answers apply. When you've sinned and caused others to sin in the past, the guilt of the fact that you've caused others to sin you take care of that in the same way that you would do any memory of the past? The, the guilt. Yes. Um, so if you caused someone to sin, or if you yourself like are really hard on yourself because of your own sin, that can be another temp that can be a great temptation. If you caused yourself to sin, and you can't forgive yourself, right? And the memory just keeps coming up. Well, that's a problem because the fathers tell us no matter what, don't fall into despair. And God can save us from our sins and we should never despair. We should never lose hope in God's forgiveness. And so people in our day particularly have difficulty forgiving themselves. And they carry, the, they carry things, you know, for years and years and years. So we have to, you know, that's why a lot of times we're given a penance. It's, it's a therapy. It's not a punishment. It's a way for us to truly repent and to get rid of all the baggage of our sin. And if, if a priest just says, ah, forget it, it's fine. And it was a really serious sin. Sometimes a person, that would be sometimes a disservice to the person because they need, they need like a certain level of being able to, to work that out pound it out with, with an appropriate uh, penance. It's a way to actually receive God's forgiveness. 
with a comparable type of repentance. But it's not to earn God's grace. It's therapy for ourselves to heal, to heal the soul. And that's why penances are given, not just in general, say a hundred, Lord have mercies, or Hail Marys. The, the penance depends on the sin, because it's a therapy. That's how it works. But you said if we sinned against somebody else, well, it's a similar thing we have to forgive ourselves. Especially if, if they've forgiven us, but even if they haven't, um, they, we have to, we confess, we repent, we confess, and yes, it's true that we can be assailed by those memories, and it can bring an unpleasant feeling, but we have to keep going back to God's grace and forgiveness and be reminded of that. And not, um, we're not, we're not in charge of punishing ourselves. You know, we don't really get to have the luxury of doing that. So sometimes I tell people, you know, look, if you're going to be punished, I'll tell you. I'll do it. I'm the priest. And I'm telling you, there's no punishment, so stop. Stop it. Um, so we, ha we have to forgive ourselves. And... Um, must be getting tired. I forgot what I was going to say. That's probably for your benefit. But maybe we'll, if we could save the question, you can ask him personally during lunch once he gets some food in him. Thank you very much, Father Michael, for this next session, and we look forward to hearing Thank more you. from you.